And Moses and Aaron, gather the congregation before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand. And with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their beasts also. Dear congregation, we encounter the congregation of Israel here on the other side of the many years of wandering in the wilderness. This is the second generation who witnessed their parents' generation dropping like flies through the wilderness, being buried, perhaps some of them even in shallow graves, some unceremoniously, perhaps. And all, all, all of this coming to pass when they had been so very close. Indeed, there at Kadesh, this very same place, they could have thrown a rock into the land of promise. It was theirs for the taking. But after, as you know, the the errand into Canaan, the reconnaissance of the 12 spies, the great majority concluded that although it is indeed a great land, and yes, you see these tremendously large clusters of grapes, yet we cannot take it. The Anakim are there. We feel as grasshoppers before them. And the cities, they're walled up to heaven. And only two, Caleb and Joshua, stood on the side of the promise. Well, Caleb and Joshua are here, perhaps as some estimate, 38 years later, with many more gray hairs upon their head. Have you not witnessed the faithfulness of the Lord? O Lord, when I am old and gray-headed, forsake me not. Keep me, O God, that I may declare thy righteousness unto the generation to come. May that be our prayer. May we get in line behind those who believe the promise and who stood for the gospel, even at the risk of being stoned. Yes, boys and girls, Caleb and Joshua almost became martyrs. But with just a little sprinkling of gray uh, gray heads, This congregation is the next generation, and yet they fall into the same sins as their fathers. How maddening it must have been for Moses and Aaron, expecting better things. A new opportunity, a new generation that had been chastened by the Lord, that according to Moses in Deuteronomy was led through the wilderness for 40 years where they were fed with manna, that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And yet, and yet, 
Would God that we had died with our brethren before the Lord. There's no water in this place. This passage has sometimes been confused with a one that is very similar to it in Exodus chapter 17. Now, there are enough differences when we compare them to conclude that what actually was happening was more or less of a tragic repeat of what the first generation had done. Complaining for water and God gloriously and miraculously gives that supply from a rock. But it is all of a cloth, isn't it? Whoever's committing sin, whenever they're doing it, it's all the same thing. It's transgressing the law of God. And yet, at the waters of Meribah, at the waters of strife, we have not only tragedy, but the glorious triumph of God's grace and mercy. That where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. With God's help, dear congregation, consider with me the waters of Meribah under three points. First, the striving of the people. Second, the failure of Moses and Aaron. And third, the grace and glory of God. In verses 2 through 4, we have the striving of the people. More pointed fingers of accusation. Once again, getting in line to lodge the complaint. Why have you brought up, they speak to Moses and Aaron, this congregation of the Lord into this desert that we and our cattle should die there? Isn't it painful to have your good motives judged? Is that why you brought us here? Their fathers said things similar, didn't they? Were there no graves in Egypt that you had to take us out and bury us there? And wherefore have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us unto this evil place? It's no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. Now, those were facts. I don't think Moses and Aaron would have disputed these things. They weren't yet in that land flowing with milk and honey. But isn't it oftentimes the case that the problem isn't so much with the facts as with the interpretation of the facts? The fact was that the one that we hoped would be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, that he would deliver us, and yet now he's dead. We're disillusioned. We're, we're, we're just reeling. It's a fact. Jesus Christ died. There was no dispute. The Roman spear went into his ribcage, and they did not break his legs because Roman soldiers knew exactly what dead, sol dead men looked like. 
But friends, more often than not, we don't, we don't so much have a problem with facts as the interpretation of those facts. They did not believe. They did not trust that God was over, behind, under, around all of this barrenness and that there was water to be had if only they would ask. Psalm 81, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But they strive and they're not striving so much against Moses and Aaron, are they, as they're striving with God. They're, they're, they're struggling and contending with God. Dear friend, have you got in the ring with God? If you haven't, don't do it. And if you've gotten into the ring, submit. Don't fight with God. God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the lowly. Perhaps some, some here, maybe it's not been in a very outward and an overt and a raw and a nasty way like we have here recorded for us in, Roman, in Numbers 20, but it's there in your heart, the chafing, the friction against God. God is not your enemy. Don't strive against him and don't strive against his servants who teach you and model uh, the goodness of God towards you and shepherd you. And don't provoke good and godly men to sin. Boys and girls, this may come as a great revelation to you. But your parents' hearts are not filled with warmth when you complain. Your parents are not just waiting on pins and needles to hear the voice of your murmuring and your frustration. It's a burden. And what we have here, and we're going to see this in in the moments to come with, with God's help, what they end up doing is they, they so agitate through the friction of their pride and their, their contending and their unbelief that Moses falls into a degree of sin. And in case we have any doubts about that, the psalmist in Psalm 106, 32 says they angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes because they provoked his spirit so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. Hear now, you rebels, must we fetch water out of the rock for you? And instead of speaking to the rock as he was told to do, which is distinct from Exodus 17, where God did in fact tell him to strike the rock. Here, instead of obeying the voice of the Lord, he strikes that rock, not once, but twice. It's bad enough that you fight against God and that you provoke God. 
But will you also provoke his servants who only seek the best for you? They have sin too. When they receive the hands of ordination, they are not cleansed from original sin. They struggle. And oftentimes they struggle because the people for whom they are responsible are not as they should be. Second, the failure of Moses and Aaron. In verses 7 through 11, Moses and Aaron, to a degree, carry out the will of the Lord. But there's a big asterisk, isn't there? Moses and Aaron obeyed yet wrongly. The Lord spoke, take the rod and speak unto the rock before their eyes and it shall give forth his water and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. And what does Moses do? He takes the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. All right, so far so good. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation before the rock. All right. We're still going in a good direction here. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. Yet the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. They complied, but on their own terms. They didn't do it as the Lord had said. Now, we oftentimes don't we? We we plead the excuse of partial obedience. You know, Saul, he could he could look at, at all the all the things that he had done, but Samuel hears the bleeding of the sheep. And there's Agag. He's trembling, to be sure. But it seems like that fear is past. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Right things wrongly done before God are wrong altogether. Whatever excuses we may plead, Lord, if, I, if you graded me, you know I'd get a B plus, but I didn't call upon you for a B plus. I didn't say, love me with most of your heart, most of your soul, most of your strength, most of your mind. No, I said all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your mind. Now, 
I do think, and commentators I think are on the mark when they observe that God does hold his servants in a certain sense to an even higher standard. Not that there's a different law for the servants of God, but to whom more is given, to whom much is given, much is required. And maybe that's why God isn't letting you get away with the smaller things that it appears that God lets others get away with. Have you ever experienced that, child of God? It seems like others can do these things without any consequences, but me, I always seem to get caught. Maybe that's a good thing. It's the grace of God. And therefore, if we have been given much, let us realize not just the the goodness of God, but the expectation of the Lord that if I give you five talents and not three and not one, I want to see a return suitably. But these things aside, right, right things wrongly done before God, they're wrong. And small sins are sins. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, expresses the, uh, the opinion of many who may not easily see exactly what Moses did was so wrong. And Calvin, as he often judiciously says, let us learn as well that our works on the surface of which nothing but virtue is apparent are often abounding in secret defects, which escape the eyes of men, but are manifest to God alone. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Every sin, however small, is a world of evil, even if others don't see it. Even if others would say, well, Moses, you know, you, we can't be too hard on you because, I mean, these people, that they just did it again. It's maddening. Who wouldn't have said such things as Moses did? They were rebels. And they deserved much more then certainly the water that they would get, that rod should have been upon them and it should have been infinitely greater than what struck that rock that day. But every sin is a world of evil condensed and concentrated and don't ever forget that. So be done with your religious pride in your deeds, your good deeds, Well done. If you have done that which the Lord has commanded you, say, I am but an unprofitable servant. I have only done that which my master has required of me. Freely I have received, and so I freely give, as David confesses, all the good things that we are now returning unto thee. They came from thee in the first place. Verse 
Be sensitive of even small sins. Because the smallest sin grievously offends God and indeed calls upon God's disfavor and displeasure. And if we, if you and I tend to think, well, the Lord seems to have been a bit harsh in punishing Moses with not being able to see all these years waiting to see the promised land and to enter into it according to the promise to Abraham, sin is sin is sin. Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Think about that, unbelief. We're not talking adultery and murder, we're talking unbelief. But unbelief is sufficient to disqualify us before God. Indeed, to cast us not only out of the inheritance of of, of the earth and of heaven itself, but to send us into that place of outer darkness. Moses and Aaron obeyed, yet they did not obey. They obeyed in a way, yet wrongly. And the root of their disobedience, and the Lord makes it very clear, was unbelief. Now exactly the shape of the unbelief in Moses and Aaron's heart, we don't exactly know for sure. And students of scripture have debated this back and forth. How exactly was this unbelief and a dishonoring of God? Well, perhaps perhaps that unbelief in the heart of Moses and Aaron was that simple unbelief that God somehow could not do what he said. That's not the first time that a good and a godly man has struggled against the possibility, even if he's seen the mighty working of God. Is it possible when Moses says, must we fetch you water out of the rock that somehow there is deep down a sense that the striking of the rock is somehow necessary? There is some little extra that humans must do to bring about the glory of God. Or perhaps the shape of that unbelief in the heart of Moses and Aaron was that he should not show mercy. Now that's not so much an issue of trust as it is a soured view of God a soured view of his goodness, of his benevolence, and his favor. Moses and Aaron were clearly frustrated and angry with the people, to some sense rightly so. John Owen says, as they began, so they ended. 
there they are doing it again. Had they learned nothing? They saw their parents laid to rest. Their parents would not be able to see their children and their children's children in the land, entering into houses which they did not build, partaking of the wine of vineyards that they did not plant. Why? Because they complained and murmured and strove against God in unbelief. And yet it seems as though the anger and the frustration of Moses and Aaron was not altogether godly. There's a distinction, isn't there? Be ye angry and sin not. Not all anger is sinful. Our Lord Jesus Christ was very jealous for his house, his father's house. But in the hearts of even the godliest of men, there can be a turning. It becomes sour. It used to be a a delightful thing in the presence of God, that passion, that zeal for God's honor. But then something, something happens and it sours. Beware of carnal wrath, even in a righteous cause. Beware of it. Sin is lurking at the door. You, who by God's goodness have for many years been serving him, beware of carnal wrath, even in a righteous cause. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. God doesn't need your poisoned anger to prop up his power, his goodness, his promise, his covenant. In fact, he he refuses it. Perhaps this unbelief took the shape of denying Israel mercy in their hearts. They don't deserve the water. Come on, if you were there, would you have wanted to give them water? If that was the case, they refused God his rights. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And don't be like Jonah, who sits on that hill, just waiting for the wrath to fall upon Nineveh, because surely God's not going to show mercy to them. They don't deserve it. Now, had wrath come down on that city, it would have been just and righteous of God to do so. But there is a sick and a perverted dimension, even of the heart of sometimes God's own servants, in which on the side of God, they lose their perspective and they begin to meddle with free mercy. And he who shows no mercy will be shown no mercy. 
Beware that self-righteous attitude when God will have pity upon a certain one. And you say, oh, but does he know what kind of woman she is? I know that guy. He's no good. He never will be any good. You know not what spirit you are of. Beware of that spirit. That spirit that hems in and constrains the mercy of God. Must we fetch water out of the rock for you, you rebels? Perhaps Moses and Aaron, the shape of the unbelief of their hearts, will never probably finally and fully know. Does it really matter in the end? Unbelief is unbelief. And this is more a mirror for our hearts than it is for for anything else. But is it possible? Indeed, it, it could well be that they found fault with God's ways, allowing a repeat of Israel's failure. Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you letting this happen all over again? If you know your heart even a little bit, my friend, you can fully understand how your heart can be poisoned at the same time against your brother and against God. Perhaps the unbelief, the, the poisoned thinking of Moses and Aaron at this point with respect to God was that Israel's, Israel's offense was not primarily against Jehovah, but against them. You know, it's very easy for the servants of God, being so allied with God and his cause, to get those things confused. You're stepping on my toes. You're causing me heartache and difficulty. Must we fetch water out of this rock for you, you rebels? But no, it is against the Lord and him only that we have sinned. Or perhaps, and this is not unlikely, Moses and Aaron sensed that they had the power and the prerogative of the miracle of mercy. Must we fetch you water with this rod that God never said should smite this rock? And twice, a sign of the flesh. The flesh never carries out the will of God. Whatever the particular shape of unbelief, they dishonored Jehovah. Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. And that's the rub. God didn't get his glory. That is the end of all things. Man's chief end 
is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But God was not sanctified in this moment, this moment of carnal rage. It was about Moses and Aaron and not about the Lord. And God will be sanctified. As Moses said to Aaron, when Aaron was bereaved of his two sons, you remember the story, boys and girls, I trust. Nadab and Abihu, Moses must console Aaron with very solemn words. This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And so the failure of Moses and Aaron was that they should come that close. And as Miriam died, Moses would die, Aaron would die, short of the land. And this is instructive. We know that they belonged to the hall of faith. We know that they are in the everlasting rest. But they had to be chastened. And so you, you may be by God's grace a justified sinner. But you may by your sins bring God's rod upon yourself. This may take special and different forms a particular cross, a thorn in the flesh. The eclipse, partial and entire, of assurance of God's love. You may be, because of your sin, chastened by God, giving you to a degree, to a special season of temptations. But do not despair. Kiss the rod, yield and wait. Say as David, as he left Jerusalem, as Shimei cursed him, let him curse, for God has bade him to curse. If the Lord favors me, he will bring me back. Wait on the Lord. Don't give in to despair. Maybe it's been years and years and years and you've felt no, no assurance. But don't, don't despair. That's exactly what the devil would have you to do. Wait, but wait in faith. Third and last, and more briefly, the grace and glory of God. God shows grace and mercy to rebels, notwithstanding their sin and the sin of God's servants. Isn't that wonderful? There's no monkey wrench of sin big enough. to complicate and to prevent God's grace and mercy. 
In fact, God shows grace and mercy through rebellion. It's through the rebellion of these, of these people who complained and through the, the disobedience of, of Moses. Must we fetch water out of the rock for you, you rebels? Now, this does not suggest for a moment, let us do evil that good may come. But God, in his sovereignty, harnesses the wrath of man to his praise. He did this, of course, so many times through redemptive history, but did he not ultimately do it in the Lord Jesus Christ? It was through the instrument of wicked men and their rebellion. You, with wicked hands, have crucified the Lord of glory, but lest you be given over to absolute despair, this was a part of the absolute foreordination of God that he may bless you. Like the betrayal of Joseph. Don't give way to despair. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many souls alive. It is through the cross the Roman cross and the rejection of the Jews that he blesses Jews and Gentiles. And we observe here that God works for his own name's sake. When men fall short of the glory of God, he will get the glory nonetheless. This is the water of Meribah because the children of Israel strove with the Lord and he was sanctified in them. And the Lord will, despite his servant's sin, magnify his mercy. Friends, as we close, if we learn nothing else, let us learn through Moses' chastisement for his sin that righteousness and salvation do not come by the law. Moses is the very embodiment of law. And yet Moses was a sinner. Just remember that. The law can only expose and condemn. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Lord gives a visible picture to Israel and to all of us that the law, as a covenant of works, it cannot bring us into the promised rest of God. It cannot be because of the flesh. It's not the fault of the law. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. But it's sin taking occasion by the commandment. It is the flesh the carnal, wicked mind of man that takes the law as a way to justify himself and it destroys him. There must be another and dear friends, there is another. The law came by Moses but grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. 
God is the fountain of all good. Those waters that gushed out of the rock, that was, that was but a picture of God himself who is the fountain of living waters. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself is that very living water. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it was that said unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. If any man thirst, come and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Paul tells us that Christ was there in the desert. The rock that followed them, that spiritual rock was Christ. Well, as the gospel was preached to them, so all the much more it is preached, all the more clearly and powerfully to us. Dear sinner, are you thirsty? Do you really understand what true thirst is? Are you thirsty for righteousness? Are you thirsty for freedom? Freedom from your pride, the bondage of your your self-sufficiency, of your self-righteousness. Are you thirsty for those things? These lessons are there. These vivid, colorful lessons are there to get us thirsty. And if you're thirsty, whoever you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter how strong that thirst is or how small it may be, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And don't tie yourself up unnecessarily in knots. If you have even the most simple thirst, come, come to Christ. He's infinitely willing. He's infinitely able. And unlike Moses, he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And he will satisfy you in the innermost part of your being. Come and drink. Come and drink. Amen. Let us.